Good morning. Man, that was a good time of worship, wasn't it? Uh, I want to ask you too, if you would just thank somebody. This is going to be a little bit different uh, than normal here, but um, this morning, there's a lot of people crammed in here, yeah? <laughs> Does anybody notice that? Can you all turn the heat down a little bit? Uh, hey, I, I just want to recognize Renee Payne. Wait a minute, Renee. Renee helped see you all this morning and she was hustling. Can you give her a big thank you? You can always help us by coming early and coming forward, just to remind you of that. And then another thing I want to encourage you to do is, if you have your bulletin this morning on the side of it, is what we call the zip strip, and that's the place where every single one of you, every single week, lets us know that you're here. It's a way we keep track of you. It's a way that you can indicate your prayer requests to us, or if you have questions about something, you can request information about different ministries there. Uh, If you don't fill that out, we're going to put you on our naughty list and say, well, we haven't seen them in weeks, and we're going to come calling. And so just to keep us off your doorstep, you might want to do this just for your own preservation. Uh, I have uh, two or three great announcements here. First of all, happy Thanksgiving. And... uh, there's one great thing here that we can especially be thankful. We got a couple guys home from overseas. Some of our troops are home. And so I know John and Terry, would you guys just stand up? Can we acknowledge you? These guys are home this week. Well, it was fun to see some of your guys' pictures on Facebook, just returning to your family. Welcome home, men. We're really glad to have you and thank God for you. So that's very cool. Uh, And then secondly, some other good news here. Um, We want to let you know that we have a worship pastor candidate that will be coming up here very soon. And so I want to introduce you to this fellow. Uh, This was, this is Edward Raymer. And uh, he's going to be, he and his wife Megan are going to be coming up December 13th through the 22nd. And we're going to be getting to know this guy and his wife and his family. And uh, this is a chance for them. This is, doesn't mean that they're hired. This is the chance where they come up and we go through a week of really a gauntlet of meetings and questions and them getting to know us and vice versa. And so we're going to explore the possibility of, of them coming up to serve here. And so I want to give you those dates. Again, the, uh, December 13th to the 22nd. We'll let you know more about some of the uh, events of that particular uh, week as they... Uh, unfold, but they'll be here for two Sundays with us. The first Sunday to kind of observe, and, uh, and then the second Sunday, hopefully, to provide some leadership. If you have questions about that, if I could get search team members, could you raise your hand? Kathy is right here, Andrew, myself, uh, Jeff Green, and Williamson. These are folks you can maybe ask a little bit some questions, and we'll try to give you more information as, uh, as we get closer to that. But I want to let you know, and I want to especially just beg that you would be in prayer with us uh, for them, for us. Uh, that we would have a, a good time together. So let's turn our hearts to prayer, and then we'll, we'll go into the Word. Father, we have much to be thankful for, uh, and we just want to stop right now and, and remind ourselves of how blessed we are. Uh, and maybe the biggest thing that we need to acknowledge, the most important thing that we could express our gratitude for, is your grace and your mercy in our lives. That you did not leave us in a sinful condition, estranged and separated from you, but out of your great, enormous love, even for sinners such as us, you sent your own Son. Not just to rule and reign initially, but to suffer initially. 
to be literally our scapegoat, to have our sins poured into him and crucified at the cross. All of that so we could be reconciled to you. We did everything to estrange ourselves from you. And you did everything to redeem us and to bring us back. And so we say thank you this morning. God, I pray that our worship that has begun in song would not stop. But that right now it would continue as we study your word. And Father, as we go on and as we give you our tithes and offerings. As we greet one another. As we serve each other. As we provide care for one another. May this whole time be a time of worship to your honor and to your glory. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I brought a couple other pictures for you this morning. And uh, this is our dog, Huckleberry. And uh, this was taken this summer. Obviously, you can see the green in the background and whatnot. So he's a little bigger than this now. But this is Huckleberry, our chocolate lab. And uh, he's a great dog. And I brought a couple other pictures of him too as, as a puppy. Um, here he is. This is day one when we brought him home. Doesn't he look guilty already? <laughs> He's just scratching, but you know. And uh, here he is running around. And then I've got two more. This one right here is great. I love that one. How, how many of you are going, you're going to get a puppy for Christmas right now, aren't you? <laughs> and then this last one right there. That, that doesn't melt your heart. One of the things that Huckleberry did when we first brought him home is... Uh, like a lot of dogs, when they sort of first leave their mom and the rest of the litter, you know, they have these moments of, of discomfort where they feel ill at ease. And so one of the things he would do is he would, he would get right in between our legs, between our feet, and kind of sit down and hunker down right there where he felt somehow safe and, and secure there. And as you know, cats don't do this kind of thing because cats don't have feelings whatsoever. <laughs> Cats are, of course, psychotic, narcissistic <laughs> bundles of claws and fur, which is why nobody likes them very much. Um, like humans, dogs, right, they seem to, I'll just say, they seem to have more emotions. And, and uh, it seems to me, too, that uh, we, like dogs, we have moments where we get overwhelmed and we get uncomfortable and then we look for some kind of safety and security and we have lots of different things that we go to to provide us safety and security when life circumstances are difficult, right? Some of these are uh, very observable. You've probably seen many of, this, many of these kinds of things happen this morning already. An infant who is crying and upset can be amazingly inconsolable to anybody else until mom comes, right? And picks up her child and then suddenly everything's right, right with the world sometimes, right? Uh, or maybe a young child uh, will be in a situation where they feel overwhelmed. Too much noise, too much stimulus. Maybe they're out in the foyer or whatever and they're just a little bit overwhelmed and they're feeling uncomfortable and so they might maybe latch on to mom or dad's leg and sort of hide there and somehow they're, they're good in the security of mom and dad. An older child will oftentimes form some kind of an attachment maybe even to an object of security, right? Like a, a toy or a blanket. Think of Linus, right? As he had his blanket, the security uh, thing that he held on to. And as adults, you know, we just find more appropriate, socially acceptable items of security. Maybe it's that special hat, or that scarf, or a cup of coffee, or chocolate, or a shotgun, or what have you. You know, we all, we all have our, our own 
level of security with something. In the passage we're looking at this morning here, Jesus introduces two measures of security and comfort for his followers to cling to in the midst of the chaos and the confusion that's about to happen to them. And these two things, and I'm going to state them up front. Number one, the hope that can be found in the resurrection of Christ. The hope that is found in the resurrection of Christ. And then secondly, the privilege to pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, In the context, yes, Keith was right. I'm going to continue to hit context here. In the context, chapters 12 through 21 uh, of the Gospel of John, as we've looked at this, that's the second half of the book. We understand this to be called the book of glory. And this is the part in John's Gospel that... Uh, that sort of addresses Jesus' ministry as it relates to his attention to his disciples. Uh, the first part of his ministry was sort of kind of wide and large and for the, uh, for the general public to see the power and the signs of his, of his ministry. But in the second part of the book, his attention goes inward to the disciples and he prepares them for his departure and he prepares them for the persecution that's coming their way. He seems to kind of inform them of the broad strokes of his short-term plan, but he actually seems to withhold and even obscure some of the details, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, But up to this point, uh, we've seen a lot of encouragement from Jesus in the second half of the book since chapter 12, and especially last week we talked about, or we, we saw how Jesus was teaching about the benefit of the coming Holy Spirit, right? He basically told disciples, it's good that I'm going to go away because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. But I am going and he's coming to you. And, and then we, we learned about some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he's actively convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then secondly, we saw that he is equipping disciples to live in this world and to be on the mission of God. And then thirdly, we see that he's constantly drawing attention and honor and glory to Christ. And so Jesus gives them this by way of encouragement to just let them know that you have this resource, the Holy Spirit. But here Jesus makes his disciples aware of two additional resources that they have in the midst of all of the chaos that's coming their way. They have the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that is found there, and the privilege of prayer, the privilege to pray in Jesus' name. So let's look at verse 16. Chapter 16 Verse 16 of the Gospel of John. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Uh, So first of all, we see that the disciples were filled with confusion. And uh, one of the reasons, in fact, we frequently find the disciples confused. But one of the reasons we frequently find them confused is because of their false expectations of Messiah. Okay? It's not that the disciples were so dumb. It's not that the disciples didn't listen to Jesus. In fact, they listened very closely to him most of the time. Uh, But the problem was that Jesus did not fit the caricature of Messiah that they had formed in their mind from the study of the scripture and from what they had been taught. Jesus didn't fit the mold. He didn't fit their expectations. Uh, And so we're going to look at that for just a second here. They were confused because of their false expectations. So you might ask, well, what were those? As they understood the scriptures that talked about the coming Messiah, they were expecting him to be a conquering hero. 
This is critical to understand why Jesus was missed by many in the first century. They were looking for a conquering hero, a king, one who would deliver them, one who would be a ruler. And as they looked around and they were aware of their oppressive situation under the thumb of Roman rule, they were, you can understand why they would be expecting a political leader. Someone who would come in power, deliver them from the specific situation, and someone who would immediately set up their rule and reign. So when Jesus shows up, not as a strong leader, but as a suffering servant, they didn't recognize him. They missed him because of their false expectations. And of course, we know that God had much bigger, much more comprehensive plans uh, underway. We also understand that they were confused often because of Jesus' manner of speech. And this is almost hard to say. You fear kind of being struck by lightning a little bit. But Jesus wasn't always clear. And, And that wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't a shortfall of his. In fact, I think very frequently as we look at the scriptures, we know he was intending to not be as clear as possible. Very often he was obscure. Very often he veiled meaning. In, in some of his speeches and some of the things that he taught that would be discovered later. So he was not always as clear as you might have expected. In verses 25 and 29, I want to show you some of these manners of speech here. Uh, we see Jesus and the disciples referring to his communication as figures of speech or figuratively. And we've seen this before. The Greek word that describes these is peroinima, peroimia. And, uh, and it has sort of a wide range of meaning. It can mean anything from a parable to an allegory or a word picture, a proverb, a metaphor. It's figurative language. And Jesus is constantly using these figures of speech. And it frustrated his followers and it angered the religious leaders because they're frequently looking for him to be clearer uh, than he was. And, and I think there's a question, at least for me, there's a question here. And that is this. Why didn't Jesus just speak plainly to people? Why didn't he just speak as straightforward and as plain as possible? It was a question they frequently asked him too. In other words, why didn't he tell, especially his disciples in a private conversation, why didn't he just say at this particular point, listen guys, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be dead for three days. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. And then you're going to see me for a period of time and you're going to be with me and I'm going to teach you. And then you're going to watch me ascend to the Father from where I came. And it's going to be great. And then at this particular time, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Why doesn't he just lay it out in very clear sequential steps at this point? In other passages in the scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, we see that he is explicit and he is clear. And then we see some other things there such as the Holy Spirit kept them from understanding this. Or, and so we understand that there is an intentional obscurity that is happening here. Now, let me illustrate this another way. In 1932, Babe Ruth is credited with maybe one of the greatest moments in sports history which is where he was at the plate awaiting a pitch. And what he does is he raises his bat and he points to the outfield as if to say, I'm hitting this next pitch out, right? He he called his shot. And and when that pitch came, he in fact hit a 440-foot home run into center field. And it's one of the greatest moments in sports history because he called his shot. And I look at this moment and I think, Jesus, why didn't you just call your shot here? Why didn't you just say it plainly? 
And I think there's two reasons why, uh, at least in, in this particular gospel, the gospel of John, why we don't see that. First of all, there's what I want to call the authorial intent. In other words, we have to remember that the gospel of John is written by a human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to a specific audience. He has a specific purpose in mind. In fact, one of the commentaries I was reading this week, uh, I think said it very well. It said even the gospel of John is more of an argument than it is uh, a biography. John has a purpose in the way that he's arranged his gospel here. And I think one of the goals of the Apostle John in writing this gospel uh, is specifically to help people believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's specifically, we've talked about this from the beginning, he's specifically trying to demonstrate clearly the deity of Jesus because that was being challenged. And so by showing that Jesus predicted these events in advance, although cryptically, he is supporting the deity of Christ for those who may have questioned it. Um, But additionally, by highlighting these predictions in a vague way, without giving all of the specific details right here just days before Jesus' death, I think it's a way that the Apostle John is silencing some of the early critics of the resurrection. And let me explain that. Uh, Some of the early objectors to the resurrection alleged that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. And you can see that clearly in Matthew 28 Uh, Verse 12, that was the rumor that the religious leaders gave to the guards. When the guards came to him and said, "Um, we have a problem. Jesus is gone. Remember, we were guarding him. And, you know, he sort of disappeared on us. Well, the religious leaders said, you're to circulate a rumor that the disciples came and stole the body. And I think think what John may be doing here is, is by showing that though Jesus predicted his resurrection, it was veiled enough just days before the event to discredit rumors of a body snatching. Does that make sense? And so I think that's one of the sort of the reasons that the Apostle John kind of communicated the way he did. That's the authorial intent. But I think even bigger than that and broader than that, we need to look at the revelatory intent. In other words, what are the purposes of God in this? Why does he sort of keep things vague here as he's revealed it to us? And and I think that we see this throughout the scriptures, again, that God will sometimes intentionally obscure something a little bit so that it's not as clear right in that moment. And it's sort of the question of mystery. But it seems to me that God is not interested in the completeness of our knowledge here on planet Earth so much as he is interested in the quality of our faith. In other words, it seems to me that what God wants from us is to live in a trusting relationship with him. There is a dynamic of trust amidst the unknown, not living just in robotic reaction to absolute knowledge. He wants a trusting relationship, not just a mechanical one. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with knowledge. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pursue it. I think we should study hard and we should seek to learn and we should dive into the scriptures and devour the revelation that God has given to us. But the bottom line is we will not get to the point where we know every answer to every question to the level of our comfort. And I think God intends that to be so. I think he wants to draw us into relationship, not to just a reaction to knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Apostle Paul captures a little bit of this where he says, For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Isn't that reassuring? All of the questions, all of the struggles, all of the doubts, all of the wonderings that we have now, there will be a day when we are face to face with the King of Kings. And we will have a knowledge that is on par with the knowledge that God has with us. That's amazing. And so it seems to me here that even though the paroimia or these figures of speech that Christ continues to use, even though they create some confusion for the disciples here, it seems that in the big picture they actually help to authenticate the resurrection and they draw us into a trusting relationship with Jesus. Let's go on. Look at verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? Which by the way, I would just suggest that that's a rhetorical question that Jesus knows the answer to. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So we see here that Jesus promised to the disciples that their grief would turn to joy. Uh, And once again, Jesus doesn't give them absolute knowledge of every event in sequence as exactly as it will unfold. Instead, what he gives them is assurance that through all of this, you will have joy. This grief that you feel, it will change. It will change to joy. And the change of that emotion is anchored in the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. And as we're going to see, this is as true for us as it is for them. In other words, we have the ability to look at our present circumstances, whatever they might be, whatever grief or pain or question or discomfort, confusion, chaos, even persecution. We have the ability to look at our present circumstances and see them through the reality of the resurrection. And that ought to change our attitude. I think far too often Christians live with a historical awareness of the resurrection, but we don't live in the reality of the resurrection. And that needs to change. One of the things that it creates for us is a joy, as Jesus says. And this joy, we need to understand this word. Joy is a long-term perspective in contrast to happiness. Happiness is merely a reaction to the way things are. But joy measures this moment against a broader reality. It's a long-term perspective. Uh, It's joy that allows a marathoner, right, to run up to 20 miles and then sort of hit the proverbial wall and then run through that because they know they're going to be satisfied in their completion of their race. Joy allows them to do that. Jesus uses the illustration of a mother, an expectant mother, that it's, it's joy that allows a mother to push through the pain of delivery in the anticipation of meeting her child. And then, he, and then he indicates that a woman will even go on and forget the intensity of the pain. 
So I need to take a little poll here, compare this service with first service. Ladies, how many of you forgot the intensity of the pain of delivery? Yeah, see, actually, same thing. The people nod. They say, yeah, that was, and I was expecting someone to shout out, epidural, but <laughs> nobody did. But, but I know Amy and I have talked about this too, and one of the ways that Amy has phrased it, she has said, I think God gives us a gracious amnesia. <laughs> you know, there's a certain amount of forgetting what happened here. But, so Jesus uses this illustration, the joy of a mother to push through. Even the joy of forgetting. <laughs> we see something like this in the, in, in the case of Jesus too. We're told that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. If ever there was an, egg, an ugly moment on planet earth, and a moment of true suffering, not just physically, but emotionally, the emotional suffering of rejection, and the spiritual suffering of Jesus being separated from the Father for an instant, when the sin of humanity was poured upon him. If ever there was a moment of suffering, it was at the cross. And we're told that in that instant, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And so the Christian can have joy in the midst of the most severe trial and grief and confusion, persecution, death and loss. When our mind basks in the resurrection of Christ... The resurrection changes our perspective from this present moment to the cosmic reality of things where we know that God, who is supreme in power, has all things well in hand and always has. The resurrection should be on the Christian's mind much more than it is. We really need to learn to live in the reality of the resurrection, not just know it to be a historical event. The resurrection, the next point, is the basis of the Christian's joy. It tells us, it teaches us many things. Consider, it authenticates Jesus' claim to be divine. The resurrection confirms to us the measure of God's love. Uh, If you were on time this morning and you were here for the first song, you got to sing about that, the measure of God's love. The resurrection shows us that sin has been conquered. The resurrection demonstrates to us that death has been defeated. The resurrection reminds us that this earth is not our home. The resurrection draws our minds heavenward where Christ is seated. The resurrection is an anchor of our hope for heaven. The resurrection of Christ being the first fruits of a much greater harvest which is yet to come the resurrection of all the saints. The resurrection teaches us many things. It is on the basis of the resurrection of Christ that the Christian can have joy because it changes our perspective. Even the disciples' grief in the midst of what was happening to them, the loss of Christ, the oncoming persecution, it was going to change their attitude, Jesus said. Their grief would change to joy. How much more should our prevailing attitude on this side of the resurrection as New Testament saints with the revelation of God in his word, the Holy Spirit residing within us, teaching us all of these things constantly, how much more should our attitude be that of joy? We also see, and maybe the most fascinating thing of my study this week is this next point. I won't have time to unpack everything that I learned, but the resurrection changes questions into petitions. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. 
Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Jesus does something interesting here. There's a bit of a play on words. Uh, Frequently in this passage, he continues, we see the the word ask or asking. And I didn't bother to to count. You you could do that and come up with a number. But it just keeps coming up again and again and again in this section here. And so Jesus kind of makes a, a, a play on the word. In fact, the, the, in verse 18, the Greek word, which is translated asking, uh, is elegon. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means they kept on asking. They kept asking. You know, imagine, moms, those of you with four-year-olds and five-year-olds, right? You've, you've got these little guys. They're filled with questions. And they come up to you and say things like, Mom, can I have a snack? Uh, can I have a cookie? Can I have two cookies? Can I have one of those two cookies before dinner and one after dinner? And then after all that's happened, they come back to you and say, can I have a snack, right? This is, this is, this is the way kids work. They keep asking. They keep after. And, and that's the same picture of what the disciples are doing here. They are persisting in their questions. They continue to ask Jesus. In fact, every indication is that this wasn't just a short speech by Jesus, but this was an ongoing, continual conversation where they kept asking all of these questions. And he sort of turns that on them and, and, and sort of makes them aware that things are about to change in such a way that they won't continue asking him questions. One, because he'll be gone. But two, and there's, there's two reasons why. They will, they will change their questions from asking into petitions. And the reason why is because they will be granted direct access to the Father in heaven. Based on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, their questions will go right to him. And secondly, they will see a demonstration of the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead and to redeem mankind. They will see this and will be so amazed by it that they won't be asking for answers, but instead they'll be asking for assistance. Questions change to petitions. We don't need answers, we need God. We don't need all of our questions to find answers. We need his help and his assistance. Questions change to petitions. It's a beautiful play on words that Jesus introduces here. And he, and he tells us straight up here, he promises the privilege of praying in his name. Look at verse 25. Though I have been speaking figuratively, A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. And so you can see here, Jesus promises that through him, we have, we are privileged with direct access to the Father. It's not that we we pray something or we make some kind of petition or request and he takes it to the Father and says, hey, you know those people down on planet Earth, they asked this. And so I'm bringing it to you. He says, we take it right to the Father on the basis of what he has already done for us. We have direct access to the Father because of our loving relationship to Christ. 
And also, as we kind of look at this passage in, in sort of the literary context, well, I use that phrase a lot, right? Always read in context. Good Bible reading is done in context, right? There's two kinds of context. You guys are getting it, all right. There's two kinds of context. One, one is historical context, right? Who is this written to? Who's writing? What's the purpose? What's the intention? So there's historical context. And then there's literary context, which is where is it placed in the arrangement of the scriptures? What's before it? What's after it? So context kind of takes on two different levels there. And so as we look at the literary context and we see where this teaching is placed, what becomes before it, what comes after it, it's almost as though Jesus is taking the disciples on a tour of all of the resources that is coming available to them in his death, burial, and resurrection. Last week we saw, it's good that I go away because the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be in you. You will be empowered and he will do his ministry in the world and in you and will bring honor to me. And then here he tells us, even though you're going to be in grief and you're going to have this terrible time and persecution is coming to you, your grief will turn to joy. The reality of the resurrection will be a hope and an anchor for you. And you will have the privilege to pray in my name. And so we see all of these things that Jesus is letting them know about. And that continues as we go into John 17 and we see the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we'll get to that next week. Let me illustrate this another way. This, this, um, this I guess it was uh, about, wasn't this month, it was probably six weeks ago. I'm particularly disappointed that we don't have a lot of snowfall. Anybody else with me? I'm ready to go out and play. And one of the ways I, I keep in shape or try to is, is through cross-country skiing. And I have not had many good skis this year. And um, so I, I decided I would go to a, a local gym here in town and sort of inquire about a membership. I wanted to see what that might look like. So I went in and asked a few questions. And the associate there kind of took me around and, and took me on a tour and said, okay, here's, you know, here's the locker room, here's this, here's that. And they walked me through all of the privileges of, of a membership um, at, at this particular gym. And it seems to me that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying on the basis of the resurrection, on the basis of what's about to occur, on the basis of relationship with me, these are your privileges. This is what it means to be a member of my family. This is what you're getting. And I would submit to you it's a very good deal. He goes on to talk about what it will mean to pray in his name. And I would summarize that, as, at least initially, I'd start with this phrase, that praying in his name is committing to his glory. Praying in the name of Jesus, that phrase, that's not a, like a magical wand, you know, a hocus pocus we get to wave over our prayer so, you know, that we guarantee it goes right to the ear of God. I want... $10 million in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> Guaranteed it. It's going to happen. I said the words. That's not how it works. It's not a magical phrase. To pray in Jesus' name means a couple of things. First of all, it means we are claiming the privilege and the right as members of the family of God on the basis of our relationship with Jesus and on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection we have the right to make this petition. We're claiming a privilege that we get to approach the Father in Jesus' name. Uh, that gym membership that I was looking at, one of the benefits was that you could bring a friend if you signed up for a particular membership. And that friend wouldn't have to pay for you know, a membership fee, and it could be a different friend from time to time. 
they would come to the gym and have the opportunity to work out in your name because you had the membership. And praying in Jesus' name is the same kind of thing on the basis of Christ's relationship with the Father and the price that he paid for me and for my sins that I have access to him. I have immediate access to the Father in Jesus' name. I have rights and privileges as a member of God's family when I come in Jesus' name. It is my right to be there. And it is my only right to be there in the Father's presence because of what Jesus has done. That is what it means to pray in his name. Families, teach your kids. It's not a magical addition to the end of a prayer. It's a right and a privilege based on what Jesus has done for us. In addition to that, praying in Jesus' name is also a way of of wrapping our prayers in the priority and the honor and the glory of Christ. Praying in his name is, it not only is a claim of the privilege of access, but it's in a way of qualifying our prayer. In other words, I want $10 million. No. I want what Jesus wants. I'm praying in his name, showing that I am reorienting the nature of my prayer primarily for the honor and the glory of Christ. I want his name to be praised, not my wants and wishes granted. We're claiming a privilege and we're qualifying our prayers such that they're oriented to the supremacy of Christ. Let's move on. Look at verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, this is kind of funny actually. Oh, now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. That's a shocking statement. This is days before, right? Hours before. Now we, we believe that you came from God. I, I don't know how Jesus doesn't just go, are you kidding me? After all that you've seen? But in fact, he has a very different kind of response. And there's almost a tongue-in-cheek response. He says, oh, do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples, I think, have a funny reaction here. It's... they. I I could have been a little clearer about this last point, but it seems they thought that they had a greater faith, right? Oh, we've got it now. We understand it. Now we know. Now you're being clear. We get it. There's, There's a little puffing up going on here. But what Jesus offered them was not a greater knowledge or understanding, but a greater peace in the midst of it. We learn a couple of things here. Actually, you guys know this. Application from the word of God comes in three areas. It's what we need to know, or what we need to be, who we need to be, or what we need to do. What we need to know, who we need to be, or what we need to do. We often like, we like the what do I need to do part, because we're pragmatists. So just tell me the three easy steps. But a lot of times it's what we need to know, or the kind of people we need to be. And Jesus is giving us something that we need to know. The two points we've already addressed here. Peace comes from the reality of the resurrection. That's going to change their attitude about everything. 
And peace comes from the privilege to be able to pray in the name of Jesus. I need to wrap up here. There was a great poem by uh, Emily Dickinson. Uh, It's called, Tell the Truth But Tell It Slant. I don't know if you're familiar with this one or not. But there's a particular stanza in there that I like and I think is pertinent to this sermon. Uh, She says this, she says, The truth must dazzle gradually or every man go blind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man go blind. And I think by the grace of God, he has revealed the truth to his people in his word, through his son, in creation, by the Holy Spirit, gradually. So he didn't blind us with his glory instantly. And we're still learning and we're still growing. We don't need to puff up as the disciples did and say, oh, now we got it. But we can claim some privileges, some comfort and some peace in the reality of the resurrection and the privilege to pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen? Let's go to him now. Father, we acknowledge the incredible privilege that we can come directly to you because of what Jesus has done. Jesus, thank you for taking my sin into you those things that I have done in rebellion, in anger and frustration, that all of them, every one of them was destroyed at the cross. Thank you for going to the grave and somehow knowing death so that I might know life. Thank you for raising from the dead showing the power and the the love, the grace, the mercy of God. And the great lengths he would go to to redeem us and to bring us into a rightful relationship with the Father. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come directly to the throne of grace in the name of Jesus. There is no other reason that we would have any right to come anywhere near the throne of God. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know what it means to be a child of God because they have not yet professed faith in Christ, I pray that you would draw them, that they would know mercy, that they would know forgiveness, that they would know in the first time, for the first time in their life what it means to have a clear conscience before God, not because they've worked harder, but because Jesus worked for them. May they know what it means to have peace with God in this life and the life to come. Father, draw people to yourself that they might know you. We love you and we thank you. We are honored to be your children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.